to be in the past isn't what we think it was either this is hell it's easy to think the way it is now is the way it has always been to some extent sure i mean new technologies arise tastes change events take place that seem at least earth-shattering at the time but some of what we think has always been is actually relatively new It's easy to think, as British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher insisted we do, that there is no alternative when we understand conditions as natural, the way things have always been throughout all human history. Thatcher claimed there was no chance but to prioritize corporate power and private profit over social services and the common good, which is at the root of increasing inequality. Of course, she did all this under the rhetorical guise of free markets, free trade, and globalization. Many may think that there is no alternative when it comes to policing and prisons as well. That sure, defunding the police and ending mass incarceration are worthy causes. But we're going to still need police and prisons because that's the only way it has always been. And there are no other options when it comes to addressing crime, especially violent even the most heinous, deadly crimes. But what if that is, in fact, not the way it has always been? What if there are examples in human history and examples still taking place today of societies that do not use individual punishment to fight what we may call crime? What if there are alternatives to police and prisons and they exist both in our history and our current day thriving right now. The police and prisons do not seem to be working as a deterrent to crime in the United States, where we have the second most incarcerated people, both in number and percentage in the world. It's time to consider something else, anything else, which is what we will be doing in a few when we speak with award-winning writer, interdisciplinary artist, and spiritual worker Sharice Morris, author of the Truth Out article, To Build an Abolitionist Future, We Must Look to Indigenous Pasts. Worlds without police and without prison have already existed, predating colonization and slavery. In fact, as Sharice will point out, they actually colonization and slavery actually ushered in the need for things like police and prisons. Her essays have twice been recognized as notable works of literary nonfiction in the Best American Essay Series 2018 and 2019 and have been nominated for the Pushcart Prize. Sharice was also a finalist for the 2019 Black Warrior Review Nonfiction Prize. In 2019, she was also a Literary Arts Fellow at Kresge Arts in Detroit. 
Her multidisciplinary performance work and writing has been supported by a host of regional and national organizations, including Red Bull Arts, Allied Media Projects, Museum of Contemporary Art Detroit, among others, and has received funding from the Foundations for Contemporary Art, Poets and Writers, and PEN America. Merging experimental writing, poetry, and prayer with performance, movement, sound, and ritual practices, Sharice's work creates transformative spaces that invite communities to explore, imagine, and continue the infinite work of individual healing and collective transformation. The first installment of her ritual performance-based series, Visions of the Evolution, Revelation 1, debuted in June 2019. Her essays have appeared in the Iowa Review, Long Reads, Feminist Wire, Winter Tangerine, Bustle, Fourth Genre, and elsewhere. She's currently at work on her first book. You can follow Sharice on Instagram at underscore Sharice underscore Morris underscore. Find out more about her at ShariceMorris.com. See her posts on Twitter at underscore Sharice underscore Morris underscore. Producing is Dan Kugler. You know what I want to correct that? I think you can see her post on Twitter at Sharice underscore Morris. Producing is Dan Kugler. Dan, how was your weekend? How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Um, yesterday, about 10 p.m., I got a uh, message from my old boss uh, from my 20s uh, <laughs> where I worked as a after-school tutor, but uh, apparently business is good and she gave me a very surprisingly generous offer to go back into doing some after-school tutoring. Uh, it's a you know a profit for center uh, for SAT prep and college applications and stuff. That's uh, fantastic. Yeah, so I'm gonna be getting it back into that. So we'll see. It's uh, I thought I left it behind, but uh, that's crazy. The have any idea? tutoring business is booming. <laughs> oh, so that's why because they just need people. I think so. Yeah. Crazy yeah. and uh, far more money than you were getting before. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow, crazy. Well, good luck to you, man. Yeah. Uh, it's evening hours, so I'll stick around uh, the radio. <laughs> Sweet. So I got some bad news last week. Well, not me personally, but all of us got some really, really bad news. If you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell, you, uh, you, know, you may have heard me give this rant a few weeks ago when I considered what life might be like if we made all of our decisions based not on what is best for the people or the planet, not any common good or shared interest, but what is most profitable for ourselves personally. It's not a hard thing to imagine considering nearly 50 years of neoliberalism fueling corporate, corporate profits for the wealthiest while tearing any safety, social safety net to shreds, leaving the most vulnerable without adequate services to survive. Whether it was Reagan or Clinton, the two parties showed massive bipartisan support for putting profits before people. So, how bad could it get? Well, according to an article of The Guardian last week, no new offshore wind farms will go ahead in the UK after the latest government auction in what critics have called the biggest clean energy policy failure in almost a decade. None of the companies hoping to build big offshore wind farms in UK waters took part in the government's annual auction, which awards contracts to generate renewable electricity for 15 years at a set price. The companies had warned ministers repeatedly that the auction price was set too low for offshore wind farms to take part after costs in the sector soared by about 40% because of inflation across their supply chains. Now, before I continue, think about that for a moment. 
What if in 30 years, your kids or grandkids or great-grandchildren ask why your generation didn't build the necessary infrastructure to slow climate change? And all you can say is inflation. And they'll stare at you blankly and say, what do you mean by inflation? And you'll stare blankly back saying, uh, I don't know. That inflation stopped us from saving their planet. How are we going to explain that? The Guardian continues up to five gigawatts of offshore wind was eligible to compete, which could have powered nearly eight million homes a year in the UK. That would have saved consumers two billion pounds a year uh, compared with the cost of using electricity generated in a gas power plant, according to the industry group Renewable UK. Again, not only would it be good for the planet for future generations, but it would also be good for the bottom line of nearly a third of of UK households. The article adds that the government confirmed just this past Friday that only 3.7 gigawatts of new clean energy products secured a contract in a significant blow to the UK's clean energy targets. Industry insiders said the three offshore wind developers behind these plans were forced to sit out the bidding after ministers refused to heed their warnings that what the government was asking was not was offering was not enough to make a profit. Think about that for a moment. It's not profitable then attempts at doing anything about climate change, if it's not profitable, sorry, then attempts at doing anything about climate change will not be pursued. If it's not profitable, why do it? As I mentioned during that recent Patreon monologue, what if war is more profitable than peace? What if poverty is more profitable than providing everybody their basic needs? What if there's more money to make off inequality than greater equality? What if there's profit to be made in suffering but not so much in, well, you know, happiness. What if our current seemingly global epidemic of loneliness is good for business? Increasingly, it seems that if there's more money to make, that's what will be pursued, no matter the real cost for the people on the planet, which is yet another reason this is hell. Dan, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is... What does This Is Hell have to do to attract more racist, white supremacist, misogynist, far-right trolls so we can make fun of them? <laughs> That's this week's question. Like this one. <laughs> and uh, we're really looking forward to your responses. You can post them on our Facebook page. You can tweet them at us. You can post them on Discord. You can post them on the Welcome to the Hellhole uh Facebook friends or group page. You can post it at all, at all of our social media platforms, and we'll be reading all of your responses on air. Heads up on the responses, Dan. Somebody sent like a seven-paragraph response. I'm reading on Patreon. It now. Yeah. It's actually very good, but it, I was just uh, thinking, like, how much makes it on air? Yeah. So let's just put that one off till later this week, and Sorry. then yeah, at some point Nikki. we'll figure it out. Nick, we'll figure out exactly how to present that to the listening audience we I'd might like be reading the, uh, message mentions earth cup is set yeah i do too Company. there uh, uh there's a lot of really great stuff in there so i'm not saying that we're going to edit it in any way uh i just want to see how we're going to be able to present it brave to me uh, brave enough to be streaming live dumb enough to be goofy stupid enough to think that we can be a part of your weekly hangover this is hell and dan has this week's hangover cured Yes, uh, this week's hangover cure is kombucha and kimchi. The New York Post recently ran a story, the two surprise grocery items that cure 
a raging hangover dietitian by uh, di- <laughs> that's the craziest headline it just yeah. stops like that yeah it, it was like that yeah it just says dietitian there, that's uh, it <laughs> not a, m- many editors no, are employed no. there uh, by post writer Brooke Cato Cato reports kombucha and kimchi are key to getting rid of the pounding headaches and the stomach churning the morning after hitting the town one expert insists the fermented products provide better gut health due to their probiotic content. Cato quotes registered dietitian Lucy Carrison saying, maintaining good gut health can strengthen your intestinal barrier function so it is less affected by alcohol, a known gut irritant which can affect intestinal motility, permeability, and absorption of nutrients. Cato concludes Experts recommend boozers drink or eat something fermented to support their gut. That weight that makes this week's hangover cure. If you are a boozer, kombucha and kimchi. Not necessarily at the same time. You too can email us at chuck at thisishell.com or message us via Facebook, Discord, Patreon, or what used to be called Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. And if you do, we will likely read whatever you have to say to us on air. Coming up, police and prisons are not a natural way of being and are evidence of our very unnatural and unnecessarily violent world. Dan will share some of your answers to our most recent question from hell. We will tell you what happened during our most recent bonus Patreon podcast, which is available at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we'll tell you what's happening later this week on the show. And as it is Monday, historian Seb Vupper has a new past inside the present when Seb provides the historic context from the past so we can have a better understanding of our present. Dan, what is Seb talking about this week? Seb starts a series of exploring the century of humiliation, which is what the Chinese sometimes call the 19th century. Learn about the Opium Wars this week. I'm looking forward to that. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime. This is hell. We live in a horribly violent society. That doesn't mean it was always like this, or it has to be like this forever. Nor does it mean the only violence we need to address are the crimes of individuals. Here to help us have a better new understanding of police, prisons, by considering what has already been successful, what has happened in societies in the past and continues to happen to this day, award-winning writer, interdisciplinary artist, and spiritual worker Sharice Morris is the author of the Truth Out article, To Build an Abolitionist Past, We Must Look to... to, I'm sorry, to build an abolitionist... It's Monday. To build an abolitionist future, we must look to indigenous past. Welcome to This Is Hell, Sharice. Thank you so much for having me. It's great having somebody else on the show who is uh, also from Detroit. I was born in Detroit over on Six Mile and uh, Mac. Uh, so okay. really look forward, always looking forward to having conversations with people from Detroit. You write, the movement to abolish systems of policing and prisons is often discredited as an unfeasible utopian notion that is not possible in the context of human quote-unquote nature. We live in a violent society built from the violence of settler colonialism, slavery, and patriarchy. The violence of this system and its origins make the violence of police and prisons seem necessary to many. 
So these there are many things, as you know, labeled as natural that are not. Mm-hmm. Capitalism at its core of just using money for goods and services is believed to be natural. Poverty is a natural state, as there has always been poverty. Famines, war, they've always been around, so they must be natural. What is considered natural but is not has often come up in conversations on our show. If something is natural, it would seem nothing can be done about it. All we can do is tolerate it and live with it. How can we overcome the belief that all of this violence that surrounds us daily, all this cruelty is natural when we are constantly seeing reports of acts of cruelty and violence? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, I think a lot of people, when they're entering into the discourse around abolition, they miss the step that everything about this world and this system has been constructed. And it's not only been constructed, it's been constructed in a way that indoctrinates us so that we continue its perpetuation. Because without the buy-in of us, of the people, the system falls. And we've seen that through every revolution in history. And the point that you made actually brings me back to Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay on self-reliance, which was written in the 1840s, you know, right between the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. And he was talking about in that essay the ways that, in particular, the political system of the United States indoctrinates people into this form of thinking where they are constantly looking to an external force to address what they see as an issue. So they're looking to experts or people who they believe have more knowledge or experience. They're looking to the institutions. They're looking to policies to address these issues instead of tapping in to the self-reliance and coming together as communities to think through these issues and address them themselves. Because we can't expect a system that was built from violence and fundamentally places us in positions where we have to replicate that violence to ever be the solution to that violence. And that is what the core of this essay is about. I actually came to the book, African Cosmologies of the Bantu Congo People, and I wasn't looking for anything pertaining to prison abolition. I was doing research for my book that I was writing at the time and thinking about the ways that indigenous African societies understood the role of the human and their communities in context with nature and the natural world. And interestingly enough, as I'm reading this book, about 40 pages in, he goes into an extensive critique on crime and punishment. And that's where I get all of these gems that I then write about in this essay. But I would position so much of prison abolition as before it is a policy issue, as a cosmological and ontological issue. Because the cosmologies, the ontologies, the ideas and the concepts and understandings that we have of ourselves and of our relationship to others then formulate the people who then go into the positions of power who then create the policy. And I think when people approach abolition, especially from a perspective of skepticism, one of the first critiques that I hear is that, oh, well, I'm not hearing any tangible solutions from folks in the abolitionist movement. As in, I'm not hearing 
any policy recommendations, which for one is not true. There are many, many policy recommendations that people who work towards prison abolition and defunding the police will give you. But secondly, we have to understand that a shift in culture is necessary before any policy can be successful. And we see that in the example of the abolition of slavery. So formally, on a policy level, slavery was abolished. It was taken away, right? But the culture had not shifted in a way to recognize that Black people were, in fact, human and deserving of the same rights and opportunities as white people. So that's when you get the immediate rise of the Jim Crow South and segregation laws. And also you see a massive boom in incarceration where black people were taken from this prison, this, this carceral system of enslavement and immediately just shifted over to this other carceral system to stand in its place. And I, so. Hmm? I, I was, I, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, oh, and, and so, you know, that just so much of what this country is built on, so much of what settler colonialism, capitalism, all of these ideas and frameworks are built on is discrediting the knowledges and practices of the societies and the communities of people that would then be exploited within the system. So, of course we are not going to hear about the ways that many indigenous communities throughout the African diaspora, because I, and I say throughout, because, you know, it started with, with communities and societies in Africa, but even afterwards, if you think about rural black communities in the United States and in the American South within their own internal operations, of course, you know, the prison system and the police existed as an external force of white people to control black people's actions and movements but within their own internal operations there were always alternatives to policing and imprisoning people of their own communities right i come from a very small rural black community where we did not have you know our own police force now there was a, a county sheriff but within our own operation of our own community, when we were allowed to operate autonomously, we did not rely on those things to address issues, conflict, or harm, or violence that may have arisen within the community. We had other ways of addressing it as a community. So, of course, those things are going to be discredited from the framework of the system that relies on discrediting the knowledges and practices of people who this system must exploit and oppress in order to exist. Wow. Top 10 answers so far this year. That was absolutely amazing, Sharice. But I got a couple of follow-up questions. First, you mentioned mm -hmm. indoctrination. We hear the term indoctrination being used by the far right now when it comes to drag queen story time. And these are events do not happen all over the country. They are not, uh, we are not, uh, you know, bombarded with this indoctrination, if you will, of by drag queen story hour, as much as we are indoctrinated into this system of violence and cruelty. 
is it mm-hmm. just, I was about to use the word natural, and I don't want to do that. Is this just part of the human condition that we accept the situation around us as natural and that we don't see it as being indoctrinated? Do we not see ourselves as being indoctrinated into the dominant system? Yeah, I think that's really important for the United States, because if we think about the principles and the values that this country was founded on, there is the idea of all of these different freedoms and liberties that people have. So I think, I mean, of course, this happens everywhere, right? And if and if I think about the societies, the indigenous African societies that Fukiao was talking about in his book that were abolitionist in practice, there was also indoctrination into that system. So I think indoctrination is an is a natural process of forming a society. But I think particularly within the context of the United States, that cannot be acknowledged because it then forces us to question the amount of freedoms and liberties that we actually have. And on the point of, you know, the far right movement, thinking about um, queer people um, being sources of indoctrination or thinking about what they call woke culture being a source of indoctrination, I would argue to them that indoctrination has to happen at an institutional level. And I cannot think of one institution within this country that prioritizes the ideas and perspectives of marginalized people like queer or trans people or Black people over the overwhelming ideas and perspectives of the whiteness that founded those institutions. Even though, and they'll point to like, they'll point to universities and say, well, look at all this stuff coming out of universities about black liberation or trans rights and questioning gender. And it's like, yeah, those people are doing that work for universities, but still at the microcosm, within the level of the institution of the university, that institution is still controlled and dominated by the frameworks and ideology of whiteness, or what I call white racial hierarchy instead of white supremacy, what other people would call white supremacy. Those are still the overarching frameworks of every institution within academia. And you also mentioned uh, the notion that people would be asking, well, give us, you know, alternatives to police and prisons and that they that there is none to offer. Although you pointed out there are many alternatives to uh, on offer Uh, things like restorative justice. You know, there's a lot of different ideas that uh, for alternatives to police and prisons. Do Mm -hmm. you think when people are asking so what's your alternative to police and prisons? Do they just want a simplistic answer? Do they just want like a four-word answer? Is the problem that it, it's a huge issue? And to explain something like restorative justice takes a little bit, little bit of time. Is the, the shortcoming of giving an alternative to police and prisons, it's not a shortcoming, but it's because people demand a simplistic response. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we live in a paradigm of simple solutions. So if you take some of the recent reforms that have been made to police departments across the country, uh, the problem, okay, police are killing black people. Well, we'll just put a camera on them. 
but putting a camera on them only allows us to witness those acts. It does not stop prevent those things from happening. And that's because so much of, of how we've been trained to think about moving forward in this world is based on this paradigm of simple solutions. It's like, oh, if there's a problem, then we'll just write, we'll write a law, we'll create a policy to address it. But the issue doesn't start with the problem. The issue starts with the root causes of the problem. And I think that's something that abolitionist organizers have been trying to get people to open up to, which of course there's resistance because that is incredibly complex and nuanced. But it's like, again, in the example of, you know, the abolition of slavery, okay? It's like the problem, we have a problem. Uh, slavery is, you know, not right for either economic or political interests or because of, you know, human rights interests. So we'll just create this policy and we'll say that it doesn't exist anymore, that it can't exist anymore. But you see, because the culture hasn't shifted, the policy then does not solve the issue. And that is the very core of what's wrong with the carceral system that we live in today. Like I said in the article, police actually prevent very few crimes from happening because the function of the carceral system is reactionary, not proactive. And when we think about abolitionist frameworks, we're thinking about policies, not only policies, but culture and cosmologies that are proactive, that can prevent people from even getting to the point where these sorts of things happen, because we understand ourselves and we understand our relationship to other people in our communities differently. When I was in college, the first question that people would ask was, okay, well, and, and at the time, um, there was a lot of Title IX stuff going on at my university about sexual assaults on campus. So the first question that people would ask was, okay, well, what happens if someone violently rapes someone or murders someone and there's no police to 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 come in and and you know put that person in prison and my answer was always that abolition fundamentally is not about thinking about what happens when a rape or a murder occurs it's about thinking about the root causes of those issues and how we can build a culture and a society that does not reinforce that behavior. Rape is a direct consequence of patriarchy and a society that condones the idea that men or masculine people can have access to other people's bodies. And within an abolitionist society, like my abolitionist society does not even begin at that point. So therefore, things like that become less likely, but if they still occur, right? Again, how do we step it back to address the root problem of why this happened so that it doesn't happen in the future instead of just coming in and putting someone in prison for a period of time, then getting out of prison and potentially doing the same exact thing. And I think people who ask those questions are not ready to grapple with the ways that all of these issues begin within our culture. 
And by extension, if they begin within our culture, then they begin within our own individual ideas of ourselves and within the ways that we treat one another interpersonally before any crime is even committed. And within the ways that this system necessitates violence or necessitates uh, people getting involved in underground economies because of a lack of economic opportunity elsewhere. So it's a long-winded answer. And I think people, they want just something short and simple. They want it to be like, oh, okay, well, police are killing Black people, so we'll give them body cameras. But it's not that. Yeah, too often, uh, especially within the media, establishment media, uh, it's always about the soundbite. They want the soundbite response because they only have two minutes of an interview going, and so they just got to get the small soundbites out. And that so undermines our ability to understand the world around us. As you were talking about this idea of grappling with ideas uh, of uh, any kind of change, of ideas like abolition, uh, this came up in a conversation we had with M.E. O'Brien, author of Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communizing of Care, that abolition does not necessarily only mean destruction, that it also means embracing transformation, as you write as well. And in Emmy's uh, family uh, abolition, uh, for instance, it means the expansion of loving care for all and not limiting that sense of caring for others only exclusively with those who you are, are related to, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, so why does this popular meaning of abolition only seem to be more the destructive definition of abolition, the tearing down of the old, and not this more transformative building things anew. Is this just, again, simplistic answer, is this just uh, people being afraid of the inherently destabilizing nature of change? They want to, they're comfortable with the devil they know and not the devil they don't. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And I also think it goes back to the ideas of Emerson that I was just speaking about and people internalizing this idea that the external forces, that the policymakers, that the politicians know better than any of us could ever know. And that that, uh, lack of self-empowerment that plays into that sort of thinking, which then allows us to just fall into what's comfortable, even if we know it's not right. And even if we see that it's not working for us, still falling into that. And I would argue that within the abolitionist movement itself, I have seen several examples of how people who are really energized and motivated around this work and these ideas get very wrapped up in the feeling of that destruction Uh, because it is, you know, it is a particular feeling that hits people on a level um, that, you know, similar to any extreme feeling. But also I've seen that the ways that people, some people who have been engaged in abolitionist work have been so focused on the institutions and the policies and the politics of it that they overlook the ways that they have still internalized so much of that themselves. You also write that abolition would mean funding programs and structures that support support our collective well-being so that violence no longer happens in the same ways. There can be no abolition 
without land sovereignty. The Coquille tribe of what is now southwestern Oregon, uh, their chair, uh, tribal chairperson Brenda Mead said in a statement that sovereignty is understood worldwide as the right and power of a governing body to govern itself, its people, and its lands without outside interference. For Coquille people, sovereignty is an inherent right and responsibility that has been upheld by our tribal leaders since time began. The Coquille tribe's sovereignty is tied to who we are and who we have always been. It is reflected in how we treat one another and our neighbors in the broader community. Does the concept of land sovereignty, or can it, extend beyond indigenous peoples? Can non-indigenous peoples also experience some kind of land sovereignty? I believe so. And I, so in Fukia's work, He's talking about, you know, not only crime and punishment in the framework of his indigenous cosmologies, but he's also talking about, he, he starts with the relationship that human beings have to the natural environment around them. And that as the, as the foundation of all of these other beliefs that then formed the society that he grew up in. And if we think about if we think about the ways that ma- issues of mass incarceration, issues of racial justice, issues of economic justice have all coincided with the destruction of this planet. I think that land sovereignty, we, we can't separate that from the indigenous communities that are indigenous to the land that we are on, but also we all play a role in that because those indigenous communities understood themselves and their responsibility to the land that they had stewarded stewarded it for centuries and generations as the framework upon all their other beliefs and i think that in order for us to truly create an abolitionist future we all have to take up the mantle of that responsibility to the land and to the natural environment. If we think about you know, capitalism and the destruction that capitalism has created throughout this planet in terms of human rights and also in terms of the natural world, we have to understand that it began, so much of it began with this idea that, okay, we can go somewhere else, we can kill these people, and we can take their land, which operates off of two presumptions. One, that the people that you are slaughtering and stealing from are in some way less human than you are, which justifies that. And also that the land itself does not have any say in what happens to it. And in Dr. Fukiao's book, he talks about he talks about the the two largest crimes that anyone could commit within his society. And those two things were taking land for private ownership and amassing excessive wealth that comes at the exploitation of other human beings. So I think that we all have a role to play in land sovereignty. And I, 
I don't think that in order to recognize the land sovereignty of indigenous peoples requires that we all have to no longer exist here. I think a really important part of recognizing the land sovereignty of indigenous people is recognizing that while we are existing in these spaces. I think that's really fascinating, the idea of exploitation being seen as a crime rather than something that is encouraged, as we see in our current culture here in the United States. And in that book that you've been citing uh, today, uh, African Cosmology and the Bantu Congo, Tying the Spiritual Knot, Principles of Life and Living, uh, they, uh, uh, Fukiao writes that within the belief systems of the Bantu Congo, uh, the crime was not considered an individual act, but a symptom of a failing system and a product of the collective social, cultural, economic, and environmental shortcomings of a society and its values. So why do we see only the individual as responsible for the crime? Why within our legal system of so-called justice do we only hold the individual responsible? Is there, is there some motive behind that? I believe so. And I, and you know, if you take it back to the constitution and the idea of the individual in the constitution and the declaration of independence and the idea of individuals and liberties and freedoms, those documents that founded this country and provided its scaffolding, its scaffolding, they, focus so much on this notion, this concept of individual liberties and freedoms, but so little on the concept of collective well-being and collective liberties and freedoms. And I think that all of that then bleeds into the institutions that arose from those frameworks and those ideologies and those ways of thinking. And it's also, you know, particularly within some areas, I would say within most areas of quote unquote crime, if we took the impetus off of the individual, that would fo force us to reckon with and reflect on the entirety of these systems and institutions. And in order for these systems and institutions to stand, we can't do that. So we have been indoctrinated into a way of thinking that places all responsibility and accountability on the individual. Because if we, we didn't do that, then we would question the very systems that are in place right now. We are speaking with award-winning writer, interdisciplinary artist, and spiritual worker Sharice Morris, author of the Truth Out article, To Build an Abolitionist Future, we must look to indigenous pasts. You write the indigenous ancestral cosmologies of the Bantu Congo uh, accepted the responsibility for crimes committed as evidence of a failure in how their society cared for and affirmed the well-being of the individuals who committed the crimes. Fukiao juxtaposes these pre-colonial cosmologies with the implementation of Western systems of law and punishment across Africa. He critiques the Eurocentric policy shifts of larger cities in the region, but notes that in many rural communities, like the one he grew up in, pre-colonial concepts and abolitionist principles were still visible practices throughout the 20th century. We're not going back three, four, five hundred years. This is within the last century. Why, in your opinion, did Europeans seemingly need to be 
policed. C, policing is natural. While pre-colonial societies around the world did not, was there something different, unique about Eurocentric and pre-colonial societies that explains why police and prisons were needed in one and not in the other? Mm. Yeah, I... I don't know, and I question that myself. But I mean, even if you think about Euro European societies, right? Because I think oftentimes we'll talk about like indigenous knowledges and practices, and we'll think specifically about people of color outside of Western Europe. But Western Europe also has its own set of indigenous practices, customs, and beliefs and perspectives that, you know, with the rise of Christianity, which then set the precedent for what would come after um, that have also been discredited. In Discipline and Punish, the French philosopher Foucault talks about how the modern concept of the prison in Europe could only be traced back to the 17th century, which still in human history is relatively recent. And of course, you know, the entire structure of this society which depended on the exploitation of other people, people of other identities, of course, wrapped up in that is the discrediting of any knowledges or practices of people of different identities. But I would, I would point a lot to, if I had to pick one thing that was different, and because I'm thinking about abolition, not only through a frame of policy, but through a frame of cosmology, I would point to Christian doctrine and not Christian doctrine in and of itself, but the way that Christian doctrine was manipulated by other people, by people to serve uh, genocidal violent purposes. You write that in the indigenous practices of the Ogu or Egon, people of Benin, Togo, and Nigeria, the Zangbeto was a spiritual force that took up the task of protecting individuals and communities. Individuals and communities. But those are, they're seen in opposition today in the United States, in competition with each other. Are, do you support collective rights or do you support individual rights? It's very much a binary. And that the needs of the individual must always come first in one perspective as protecting so-called personal freedoms must always be prioritized. How can both the needs of the many and the few, if not the one, be satisfied? Do you think that individual and collective rights are inherently in competition with each other? I don't. I don't. I Because I understand that even if if I don't like someone, if I don't agree with someone, right, we all have specific shared interests together. And I think that within this system and its constructs and institutions, the role of the individual has been pulled away from the idea of community and collectivism very deliberately. Because, right, what is a community or a collective if nothing more than an assembly of individuals? So you can't say that individual rights or that collective rights are antithetical to individual rights when the collective 
it's just a mass of individuals. So within that, of course, if something is supposed to guarantee collective rights, of course, within that as a mass of individuals, individual rights are inherent within that. So I think that the, the separation of the individual and the collective has been very deliberate because also, you know, the way that change happens is through collective action. I mean, just in the in the most simple example of the Revolutionary War of the United States, yes, they're, you know, they're talking, they're writing about individual rights and all this stuff, but they had to come together as a collective in order to fight against what they saw as an oppressive as an oppressive regime. But if they keep us in this space of individualism, we don't connect the way that our individual freedoms and liberties are deeply embedded in the well-being of our communities and our collectives, that, that they are one in the same. And therefore we don't come together to create that change. You know, in the example of Fred Hampton, Fred Hampton became this giant enemy to the state that who had to be murdered because of the way that he was bringing together people of all different experiences, backgrounds, identities, and perspectives around these shared collective interests. The ways that individuals could show up to a meeting, you know, dressed in Black Panther gear, and the ways that other individuals could show up to meetings wearing shirts with the Confederate flag on it. And they could hold all of those identities and still find common ground and shared interest and come together in service of their collective rights. And so much of the online discourse and the algorithms and all that we see happening on Twitter, which I would say is like a pit of hell right now, um, serves to keep us in these trains of thought that only keep us splintered so that we can't come together, right? Because if we come together around shared interests, the vast majority of people in this country and throughout the world will realize that we all have a shared interest around the environment and having a planet to actually live on. We all have a shared interest around um, having economic systems that actually allow us a quality of life that we do that we don't have to question and then that places the entire system in in jeopardy and i think so much of the constitution and the direct declaration of independence came for, so much of the institutions that came from that process deliberately put things in place to ensure that what had just happened, which was a mass uprising against an oppressive political system, would not be replicated within the political system that was being built at the time. One last question for you, Sharice. We have been speaking with award-winning writer, interdisciplinary artist, and spiritual worker Sharice Morris, author of the Truth Out article, 
to build an abolitionist future. Make sure you follow Sharice uh, on Instagram at underscore Sharice underscore Morris underscore and find out more about her at ShariceMorris.com. One last question for you, Sharice. And we do this with all of our guests, except it's a little bit different today. Uh, our final question is what we call, it's always, we do this with all of our guests. It's what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You may hate to answer, or our audience <laughs> may hate your response. And I'm glad that you're laughing. That's a great sense of humor. So this is just one of the things I was thinking about when I was reading your, uh, ar- your article at Truth Out. Because I get a small town, weekly, rural, it's a tourist town, northern Michigan newspaper. And it always, it's always fascinating to me, very much a very pro-Trump, very conservative area of the state. Uh, two-thirds of the voters voted in 2016 for Trump in the county both times. Yet, they, while they are super anti-things like socialism, like mutual aid, during the worst part of the pandemic, they would have these huge charity drives, often run by churches or through local organizations like the Rotary, to have food drives for people who desperately needed it. Essentially, they were doing mutual aid. They were engaged in what some people would call socialism. Yet they were very, these are the kind of people who are so anti-tax. They even vote against taxes to uh, pay for the police. The police then complain that they're voting to defund the police, which really creates a whole bunch of cognitive cognitive dissonance on the Republican conservative side. You write that ways indigenous cosmologies and societies re-envision community safety and harm reduction from a perspective that supported the collective well-being in integrative care necessary to prevent harm instead of focusing on carceral logics of punishment, which encourages violence. Do you think like anti-tax sentiment in rural communities around the United States, uh, do you think that that leading to cutting of funding for local police who see voting against such taxes and then see that it is voting, you know, being defunding the police, could conservative America be vulnerable uh, potentially to a system that replaces police and uh, policing with one of communal care if it means lower taxes than what they uh, pay for police and prisons. Do you think that there is an argument to be made to anti-tax conservatives that a a system of care and communal care for all, instead of police and uh, policing, that they may be vulnerable to that kind of discussion if it means lower taxes? I do. I do. And again, I return to the example of Fred Hampton. And and in my own personal work, um, many years ago when I was just getting involved with these ideas and concepts, I was very passionate and aggressive. And I would immediately write people off who, for example, um, may have voted for Trump or, for example, held these beliefs that I saw as oppressive to my existence or to the the well-being of people who I cared for. But I think, and here's the thing about abolition that a lot of people um, either aren't thinking about yet or are even people who, who are engaged in politics of abolition might not be ready for is the fact that within an abolitionist framework, um, we, it's a framework against concepts 
of exile and punishment and othering. And that means being able to come to the table and having critical discussions with people who think completely differently from you, being able to witness them and experience empathy for their human humanness, even if they are not willing or able or understanding enough to experience that same witnessing and empathy for you yet. And, you know, I think like those Black Panthers in Chicago, they could have immediately written off those white people from Appalachia who still had their Confederate flag shirts on for the mere fact that they were wearing Confederate flag shirts. And that stuff still happens in organizing spaces today, but they did not. And because of that, they were able to have those conversations to open those people up to a different perspective and to seeing their investment in a better world, in a better world for black people, which wouldn't necessarily create a better world for them. And they were willing, they were able to then come together in coalition to try and create that change, which then made them much more powerful and a much bigger threat to the systems of power that wanted to prevent those changes from happening. So I think things like that are great examples of ways that we can start to rebuild bridges of connection that may have never even existed before between you know, abolitionist ideas and thinkers and organizers and between people who have lived an experience that, you know, moves them in the direction of far-right conservatism. And ultimately, right, if we're th thinking about building an abolitionist society, we have to think about how to include people who are different from us in that. You know, it's like, are all of these far right, right conservatives going to just disappear? I mean, clearly, if we're if we're actually living by the principles of abolition, we're not going to, you know, we wouldn't have a, a regime that would murder them or get rid of them or put them in prison. So they're going to still be here in this future, which means we have to start reaching out to them around the points of connection that they already see to build those those coalitions. and. To me, any form of defunding the police, <laughs> even if it's coming from a conservative ideology of like just not wanting to pay taxes, is a step in the right direction. And in your article, you talk about uh, disappearing social problems by incarcerating people. And that is another fascinating point that you make in your article. And that's why everybody should go check out your writing over at Truth Out to Build an Abolitionist Future, We Must Look to Indigenous Past. Also, uh, one of our contributors on uh, our show, Flint Taylor, was among the attorneys who successfully sued the city of Chicago for the Hampton family after the assassination of him by the Chicago Police Department. And we're very honored to have him as a member of our crew. And finally, uh, this your, your answer to the question from hell leads to a conversation we're going to be having later this week on Wednesday about an essay by uh, Menominee activist Kelly Hayes as well as Mariam Kaba that was recently in Boston Review about 
why, what, how important it is to put up with people that we don't necessarily like if we are going to create a cause for abolition or a movement for abolition. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it, Sharice. You know I'm going to be, igno- or, <laughs> you know I'm going to be bugging you in your email box uh, for a regular basis because I'm going to want to have you back on the show. Really, truly a pleasure today. This really, and again, I want to stress to everybody in the audience, you got to read the entire article because even though we've been talking to her for over 40 minutes, we only skimmed the surface of how deep this really goes. Thank you so much, Sharice, for being on the show. Thank you for for inviting me, Chuck. And I look forward to to speaking with you again. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. And there's not much more of a dissenting opinion today in the U.S. than police and prisons being replaced. And we already know it can be done. And we can have a far less violent society without police and prisons. Because there have already been less violent societies that had no cops and no jails. If you learned from Sharice Morris, show your appreciation for completely commercial-free. This is how providing over 27 years of content that you cannot find anywhere else, giving airtime to opinions and perspectives like those of Sharice that you won't hear anywhere else, and providing new content to you absolutely free every week since 1996, including nearly 10 years of free shows that you can listen to right now at thisishell.com. Show your appreciation for all of that, please, by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can support This Is Hell. And somebody has to, because you know that to corporate and public establishment media, this is hell, so nobody else is going to feed us. Most recently on Patreon, last Thursday, September 7th, we are very, very upset. And it's not because some troll said something mean about us. We don't have a thin skin. Actually, it's the opposite. Nobody trolls us. Not Nazis. Not neo-Nazis. Not fascists. Okay, one libertarian did for only a few short hours after we spoke with anthropologist Alex Hinton about far-right transgender myths he heard this year at the annual Conservative Political Action Conference, which is put on annually by the American Conservative Union. It always seems like CPAC is a group. It's not. CPAC isn't the group. That's just the meeting. The group is the American Conservative Union. But that's the only troll we ever had. Some libertarian who was upset about outing transgender myths. We could use some validation from fascists that we're doing the right thing. A guest from last week, Amanda Moore, she went undercover among Nazis, attending the CPAC like Alex did, as well as attending offshoot parties like those hosted by right-wing groups like Project Veritas. And she gets trolled all of the time. So last week on Patreon, I considered why we aren't trolled more and what we can do to fix our problem of not being trolled. Also on Patreon, we shared a 2009 interview with award-winning writer. Maybe I should stop saying award-winning writer, and if they haven't won an award, I should say non-award-winning writer. Because every one of our guests is an award-winning writer, it seems like. David Nywert. Uh, it was a conversation from 2009, again, uh, for that took place four months after Barack Obama became the first African-American to be elected president of the United States. David's book, The Eliminationist, How Hate Talk Radicalized the American Right, had just been published at the time and is 
Analysis was amazingly accurate, especially in hindsight. David argued that right-wing radio hate talk that dominates commercial corporate-owned radio would, in response to Obama's election, become even more virulent, even more racist, leading to a re-emergence of the far-right movements from the 1990s, which is exactly what happened. All thanks to the Telecommunications Act of 1996 and its support from President Bill Clinton. So, yep, David was correct. So was everyone who said back in 1996 that Clinton was wrong when he privatized and neoliberalized the airwaves. But the only way you can hear about our problems attracting trolls and how today's far right was completely predictable and predicted here on This Is Hell, as well as get a discount code word for all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. And you can ask a question from hell of me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, and to stay on top of everything going on behind the scenes and exclusive content only for Patreon subscribers is by, you guessed it, subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks to our most recent Patreon patrons, Mark L., Evan R., Drew M., and thanks to Braden for increasing your pledge to This Is Hell. Patreon patrons not only get a bonus episode of This Is Hell every week featuring a past interview unavailable anywhere else, but they also get, like I said, extra Patreon monologue for me, special secret code word to get $5 off all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. And they also get that opportunity to ask a question from Hella of me. So check out Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Goes live every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Dan, what is this week's question from Hell? And how are our listeners responding on Patreon, except for Nick, which we'll be editing it a little bit because that would take 12 minutes to read that whole thing. This week's question from Hell is, what does This Is Hell have to do to attract more racist, white supremacist, misogynist, far-right trolls so we can make fun of them? And again, if you are a Patreon patron, go read Nick E.'s response in its entirety. If you are not, we'll be reading some of it on the air later this week. Uh, Andrea T. says, hmm... Rename the podcast This Is Socialist Hell <laughs> seems to push the right, pun intended, button. Mm. The right button. Very clever. Yes. Very clever. <laughs> uh, public, public Universal Comrade says Chuck needs to take one for the team and agree to debate Ben Shapiro. Oh, God, no, no. And those debates are stupid. Have you ever listened to those debates between podcasters? Uh, I haven't. Don't. Luckily. <laughs> Don't. It's a total waste of time. Yeah. It's just podcasters talking to podcasters. For some reason, podcasters really do not want to interview anybody but themselves. <laughs> uh, John B. says every 10th viewer gets a free pair of double XL This Is Hell khaki slacks <laughs> mailed to their home. <laughs> That's this mean, is how but khaki it's funny. slacks, and it's pretty funny, <laughs> especially with the picture uh, from Charlottesville that accompanies this week's question from Hell, and how it seems like most of those people are either wearing cargo shorts or yeah. khaki pants. Uh, Edson C says, "Just talk about how it would be nice if we all cared for each other and did what we could to look after one another, especially it was politicians and bosses that that did that." Okay, I'm not going to do that. That sounds creepy. <laughs> Martin W., this is easy. You make a honeypot, offering 
free moon pies, menthol smokes, diet Pepsis, and a pamphlet entitled Chuck's Favorite Biblical Quotes, all with camo packaging. If that doesn't draw them like flies to blank, nothing will. (laughs) It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Uh, Needle C, add dog whistles to your merch. <laughs> you know, I actually thought of that. Yeah. I actually talked to uh, somebody who works on the show, and I said, what do you think of getting a This Is Hell dog whistle? <laughs> and they were just like, I don't know if that's really appropriate. <laughs> so I'm still mulling that over. But I also had the idea of the uh, face covering, the face mask. Mm-hmm. Uh, way before the pandemic, right. like in 2018, I wanted really? to put those out because uh, there are people in Hong Kong and, who were contacting us who are protesters, mm-hmm. and they said that they would wear This Is Hell masks. I even got in contact with a guy in Hong Kong who told us that he would be willing to distribute the masks to the protesters, but it never came about until after the pandemic, unfortunately. <laughs> we would have been right on the cutting edge there. Yes. Uh, old Grouch says, don't worry, keep educating people on why this is hell. In short, build revolution and they will come. <laughs> Just take care and be ready. All right. Laddie says, candy gram. <laughs> okay. And then there's the extra long one, uh, Nick E one, which is fun but long. All right, so we'll be reading that on tomorrow's or maybe on Wednesday's show. Uh, the perfect the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. You can check it all out right now by going to thisishell.com when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can post it on Discord. You can. Email it to us at chuckatthisishell.com. You can even, you know, uh, I don't know. Where else you want to put it? Oh, put it on our Welcome to the Hell Hole Facebook group page as well. We must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. And now, Sebastian Vuper, a historian himself, who gives us the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present. In his segment, The Past Inside the Present, take it away, Sebastian. The Past Inside the Present. I'm always muting Sebastian. (laughs) Why? uh, Are you censoring him? Um, Hello. (laughs) Hello. Let us free you from behind the censorship wall. <clears throat> can you hear me now is, is yes. this thing on yes can okay, you hear me great. All right. okay yes let's 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 do this again okay one two three four <clears throat> ah opium it's like religion for individuals get it to just a little reverse marxism for you on this yeah, gray yeah, morning yeah. here to lighten up things a little yeah yeah today and in the coming weeks i want to talk about among other things opium uh, but really, I want to talk about the history of China, specifically the history of China in the 19th century, and how we are today still in many ways suffering the after effects of that history, uh, what with this being the past inside the present and all. The Chinese refer to the 19th century sometimes as the century of humiliation, and the memory of that humiliation still haunts the world today. 
I don't have time to go into literally all of Chinese history, which is quite long as and as you might guess, quite elaborate, dense with traditions, customs, anecdotes and characters. I find it absolutely fascinating, especially since I never learned about it in school and then started picking up a few volumes on the history of the Middle Realm a few years ago to close that gap. Um. I, do I have to explain what the middle realm is? That's China. That's literally what the word means. Jungo means the middle realm, realm of the middle, because, well, they've never not been a little full of themselves over there. But then again, uh, who are we to judge that? Anyway, China in the 19th century. The Middle Realm, uh, there it is again, was at the time ruled by the Qing emperors, or rather China was in its Qing dynasty phase. The Qing were special. They were not Han Chinese, the ethnic ethnic majority of Chinese people, but Manchus uh, from, well, Manchuria, a region in China's northeast. The story of how the Qing became the rulers of a somewhat unified China is worthy of several whole lectures. It's a fairly complex tale with a lot of moving parts in and of itself, so I won't go into too much detail here. Long story short, over the period of almost 70 years, the Manchu Qing kicked the butts of the preceding Ming dynasty emperors and their vassals, and in 1636, the first Qing emperor claimed the mandate of heaven, meaning the Qing were claiming to now be the legitimate rulers of China, and few people uh, dared to oppose that that, um, that distinction. It would take another five decades of fighting for the Qing to consolidate their power and secure their empire, so the Qing dynasty was really firmly uh, on the throne uh, by the 1680s. China's relationship with the rest of the world, especially in terms of trade, was fairly unique. Europeans desired many goods that China produced, but the Chinese had little use for anything the Europeans had to offer in return, except for silver. One of the problems that had plagued China for centuries was money, literally. Every emperor would print their own paper currency, but there was little oversight. So paper money was frequently counterfeited, and whenever a new emperor came around, chaos ensued, because now all the money in circulation became worthless and needed to be replaced. So to curb the issue of frequent rampant inflation and widespread counterfeiting, Chinese merchants and uh, eventually local officials began to use silver coins as currency. And this then fuels a growing and increasingly just massive demand for, for silver. China itself did not have much of the precious metal, but this was the 1500s, and Spain had just discovered a veritable mountain made of silver in their colony of Bolivia in South America. And so silver from South America made its course across the Pacific Ocean to Manila in the Philippines, where Spanish merchants exchanged it for China wares that then made their way back to Europe. And that whole system went on for quite a while. Why Manila? Well, the Chinese were not too keen on having too many smelly foreigners come to their own ports, so instead they preferred trading with them outside of the empire. And that changed in the, ninth, uh, in the 18th century. In response to British and Dutch colonization of India and Indonesia, the Qing decided to channel trade with Europeans into one singular port city, Canton. 
the Qing gave monopoly trading rights to a handful of Chinese traders there. And things went well for a while, until the European powers realized they were bleeding themselves and their economies dry of silver in order to facilitate trade with China. Because the Canton merchants wanted nothing from the Europeans except silver. And the Europeans wanted a lot of Chinese stuff. Especially silk, because at the time it was not really known how they made that. And as the 18th century progressed, the English specifically developed a very strong appetite for tea. And so the European powers developed an ever-increasing trade deficit with Ming China and grew equally increasingly impatient with the Chinese and their insistence that there was nothing they could want from Europeans but silver. And then, after the Napoleonic Wars had ended in the early 1800s, the British took over the island of Java from the Dutch and discovered that they could supply the Chinese with something other than silver. Java was at the time a large-scale producer of opium. And when Java couldn't produce enough of the drug, the East India Trading Company began to build massive poppy plantations in their Indian colonies. The Indian colonies had plenty of good lands to spare at the time, as the Indian cotton trade had become less and less lucrative uh, in the late 18th century because of the Industrial Revolution, the invention of the cotton gin, and American slavery. Because the world has always been more connected than we think. The British circumvented the Canton system by selling vast amounts of opium to Chinese intermediaries, who in turn paid for the opium in silver. And this silver was then used to buy more Chinese goods and tea through the Canton system. Since the Chinese still seemed to benefit from this, the Qing emperors tolerated this under-the-radar opium trade for quite a while. But it soon then became evident that, well... The Europeans were flooding China with a horrif horrifyingly addictive drug that began to seriously undermine Chinese society. And then a couple of decades into the 1800s, the, China, uh, the Qing officially declared opium illegal. However, since illegality never really stopped drug dealings, the Europeans continued bringing still vast amounts of the drug into China. Even some Americans got so filthy stinking rich of it uh, they, that they used their ill-begotten fortunes to become the old money dynasties of the United States. The Astors and the Del Delanos, for example, largely based their vast fortunes on smuggling illegal drugs. Uh, but that's not something any upstanding history curriculum will teach you these days. By 1838, the Qing court finally had enough and began to crack down hard on opium smuggling, condemning Chinese opium merchants to death. A new imperial commissioner was dispatched to Canton, where he used his authority and barricaded the harbor, seizing all opium held there on foreign ships and warehouses. This eliminated a large quantity of the drug, but ultimately only served to massively inflate the price of off opium on the black market, making it essentially just more lucrative for smugglers. Over the following years, several skirmishes ensued between British traders, the Royal Navy, and Qing authorities. The British superintendent for trade in China had given the merchants whose opium supplies had been handed over and destroyed a guarantee that the British government would compensate them for the lost goods. But the British government saw no way of doing that and instead then chose that it was the Chinese who had to pay. And they would have to be made to pay by force, backed by the might of the Royal Navy and the British Marine, the, the British Royal Marine, Marines. 
And what followed was a series of engagement across the Chinese coast and then also inland, in which the British proved to be vastly better equipped and trained. Chinese tactics and weaponry were no match for British firepower and strategy. And after suffering humiliating defeat after humiliating defeat, the Qing Emperor was forced to sign the Treaty of Nanking in August of 1842. In the treaty, the emperor agreed that Britain was an equal to China, um, agreed to open four additional treaty ports in addition to Canton, uh, abolished the monopoly system for Chinese merchants, and further agreed to pay the British four million silver dollars for the opium seized and destroyed, as well as another 12 million as war reparations. Further, Hong Kong, the island of Hong Kong, was to be ceded to Queen Victoria as a crown colony in perpetuity. Also, British citizens in China could not be made to adhere to Chinese laws. Instead, the British installed extraterritorial ter- extra courts in the port cities, making sure that non-white, uh, that no non-white person would get to legally judge a white person. Opium continued to flow into the country freely now. And this was the beginning of China's century of humiliation, and the beginning of a, do- uh, the beginning of a long downfall of the Qing dynasty. The position of the court had been massively damaged. China then entered a period of massive and just rapidly escalating crises. Eight years later, the country descended into the largest civil war of the modern era, and one that most people in the West never heard of, the Taiping Rebellion. Also, a second opium war happened sometime later, and we will get to that in the coming weeks. Why is all of this important today? Uh, The treatment of the Chinese at the hand of the British and then at the hands of a growing number of foreign colonial nations informs how the Chinese regarded outsiders. It is also an interesting lesson in world history. China had been far ahead of the rest of the world by the 1500s. Chinese culture and society knew technologies that would take European culture a century more to develop, like gunpowder weapons and movable type. Um, The Chinese also had massive ocean-going ships that dwarfed European vessels of the time, but this early advancement in some ways made the country complacent. Combined with the sense of cultural supremacy, the humiliating defeats in the Opium Wars were a harsh wake-up call, and the following century in which the once mighty China nearly disintegrated an important lesson for the Chinese rulers to come. Of course, other things happened between the end of the Opium Wars and Deng Xiaoping turning China into the factory of the world, but China's status and outlook towards the rest of the world today is still in large parts informed by the events of that time. So next week we will talk about the Taiping Rebellion, one of those truly hellish chapters of history that you barely ever hear about in the West. So, Sebastian, in one brief, glorious moment in my life that maybe lasted two weeks, maybe three, it's hard to remember now, I was very, very, very lucky to have access to a supply chain that included opium. (laughs) And I will share some of those stories on Patreon this week, but I can tell everybody, I did not ingest that much opium, and days after ingesting some, I had the taste of opium in my mouth, and I had a very, very strong desire to have more opium. It was one of the most crazy addiction things that I have ever come across, and it scared the hell out of me, despite how wonderful an opium high is. It was really, really frightening, so I'll be sharing that with listeners. If you want to be a Patreon subscriber, you can find out all my opium stories as well. What's new about you? 
Uh, not much, not much. We went to uh, the Grand Rapids, uh, what's it called? American Indian. Power. Uh, yeah, this this weekend was that was kind of cool. Um, it's always always great to support the you know the native population whose land we're living on without um, yeah. you know them getting anything out of it. And there seems to be a lot of uh, people in Michigan. There seems to be a lot more. Uh, awareness of Native American culture, uh, especially yeah. in the western and northwestern part of the site, uh, state, which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. All right, we'll talk to you next week. Looking forward to your next edition or next uh, yeah. S- uh, segment. Yeah, sure. All right, take care. Bye. Have a good one, Dan. Can you please tell us what's Jeff talking about during this week's moment of truth? Jeff will travel travel back 39 years to revisit his Rocco. I'm sorry. Jeff travels back 39 years to revisit his visit Morocco. To Morocco, yeah. yeah. So it's crazy because they just had the huge earthquake there, yeah. and now he's going to be giving his his uh, essay on when he went there a long time ago and how a cab driver once asked him if he knew Dustin Hoffman. So uh, who are upcoming guests on this week's show, Dan? We've got journalist Garrison Lovely returning to This Is Hell to talk about his article at The Nation, Confessions of uh, McKinsey Whistleblower Inside the Soul-Crushing, Morally Bankrupt, Top-Secret World of Our Most Powerful Consulting Firm. And that's where Pete Buttigieg is from, oh. which is gross. <laughs> yeah. And uh, organizer and writer Kelly Hayes will talk about the Boston Review article she co-authored with Marami Kaba, How Much Discomfort Is the Whole World Worth? Movement building requires a culture of listening, not mastery of the right language. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live-streaming podcast host Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Dan Kugler for producing, pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996. This is hell.